Life Audio. Welcome to the Jesus is All We Need podcast with me, your host, Jason Sotil. This is a show where we dig into the personal testimonies of people in the news, celebrities, and folks just like you and me in a way that will leave you encouraged. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Jesus is All We Need podcast. On this episode of the Jesus is All We Need podcast, I'm blessed to introduce best-selling author Jay Warner Wallace, who 10 years ago wrote an amazing book called Cold Case Christianity, and now there is a 10th anniversary edition that's coming out. I'm so excited to ask all these questions I have in front of me and a whole lot more. Anyways, Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, when you write a book, you end up answering the same questions over and over and over again. So I'm ready for you to throw a loop at me, something that I haven't heard. So that's the challenge I have for you. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcast. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to throw it out there. Ten years ago, what was your heart behind writing your book? Well, I, I was just going to, I dumbed into it. You know, it's one of those things where I, I had this experience when I first became a Christian. I didn't think much of it. I, honestly, I didn't like leverage it. I didn't like go around telling everybody, oh, I got this to follow the evidence. Let me say what the, I just didn't do that. I was um, working as a, a cold case detective eventually, but most of my time was spent in, in investigations. But we didn't have a full-time team, so I was working these things collaterally, and they would take forever. And and so while I was working as a detective, I ended up getting saved by going through the same process I described in uh, Cold Case Christianity. I mean, I was a, probably I was a senior investigator at my agency. I was not uh, interested in Christianity. Ended up investigating the claims of the Gospels using the same template we use for eyewitness reliability. Ended up becoming a Christian. Didn't think anything of it. Then I, uh, my kids were young. I started serving in the church where they were. We were all attending, just in children's ministry, just to kind of help out, right? Like every parent does. Right. Brand new Christian, didn't know much from um, in terms of like theologically. I was not theologically as sound as I would have liked to have been, for sure. Right. right. But they didn't care. They just had somebody volunteering. They were happy to have me. So I started serving in church, and then eventually I'm going to seminary, and then eventually I'm a youth pastor. All the time I'm still working as a cop. And um, uh, during that time, you know, I would, I, the first year I was a youth pastor, 
uh, the kids walked away from their faith in the, in the first the first right. graduating class. They all just abandoned Christianity, and maybe one. Well, I think one right. stayed. The rest were gone, and and why? Because they became been convinced in their first ten weeks of college of university mm-hmm. that it wasn't true. And I thought right. this is we, I got to do better than this because I was not taking an evidentialist view. Well, I just figured that's how I became a Christian, right? But I hadn't really thought about how important that was for others. Because I, until, I mean, as a matter of fact, I was entrenched in the arts mm-hmm. because of my background before I was a cop was in the arts. And so okay. I was a youth pastor who was more concerned about how this felt and mm-hmm. looked and sounded than I was about making the case. And I did that for that first class and they all walked. So I said, I'm done with that. I'm just going to go right. back to why I found it to be true. Right. And I started taking an evidential pro- uh, approach that changed everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, students became more robustly confident. We didn't lose students. It was it was just what a difference. And so that became my 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 mantra: is we need to talk about why this is true. Right. And, uh, and, and not to cut you off, but I just go yeah. with that. I get excited when I start hearing about that. You know, you're able to bring in true testimony of what you experienced also. And when I say cop, maybe in a firefighter, fireman and stuff, you know, I like throw a cop out there, but being an investigator that, that, you know, people actually look at that, especially the young guys and the young gals out there go, wait, hold on. He's investigated this, 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 and this. So therefore he must have a good understanding of what investigations must look like. And, and that's what I love about what you did with the book was you brought in what I felt like was a ton of testimony into it to back up why you had such a strong uh, belief in the way that you investigate things. You know, is that kind of a fair statement to make there? Yeah, and I really was not, I, I, I get it. It's so, so, it's so true that we are um, enamored with uh, authority and, and oh, this guy's done these kinds of cases. But I don't trust anybody. I mean, it's just the nature of who I am as a cop, I guess. And so I wouldn't trust me for this investigation. So I, I, I wanted to teach my kids, my students, what the rules of evidence are and what what the processes we use doing investigation so they can become their own detective because right. because the reality of it is in the end if you're just trusting what i say about it you're not going to be able to reconstruct that case for others when they have a question or right. when they challenge you you need to know what the process is so that you can apply it to anything you have going forward any other approach to any other kind of claim whether it's a claim about what car i should buy next or a claim about whatever uh, if you have an investigator's approach, you will probably do a better job at making a choice, a decision between what what claim is true, what claim is false, which is the better claim, that, those kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. so I just didn't want them to trust me for it, and and so I, that that's why the book really is the first ten chapters are just the the tools that detectives use, because I'm about to ask you to use them uh, to, to investigate the claims of the gospels in the next right. section. So, but first, I want to give you the tools. I I, I think in the end. I remember as a kid, I had Hardy Boys books, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the books they published was not a story. It was a detective's handbook, mm-hmm. and uh, it's about the same size as all the other books, but it was a book that was really like, here's what a fingerprint is, and here's how we lift it, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the best book of all of them because it right. was like a handbook on how to be a detective. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of what I see the first 10 chapters are. They're, they're a handbook on what detectives do. And then you get to apply those to the Gospels. 
That is so good. You know, um, a while ago, I had a, a young man ask me a question, and I actually directed him over to your book because it just, you know, it just hit home with his background, and he was, you know, kind of a tough case like I was, you know, because I didn't come to the Lord until I was 28 years old. I was a rough and tough West Oakland fireman kicking indoors, going to, you know, countless shootings per year, all the fires, everything that we went to. And so he reminded me of a younger version of me. And one question he hit me with, I kind of fell back in to your investigative work, but I, I, I put a little something on top of it to spin. He says, how do you know all this stuff written 2,000 plus years ago is real? And I quickly broke it down. I said, well, in the Oakland Fire Department logbook, every fire, every call we go to, we handwrite that it's there. And then if there's something like an arson, I actually have to get witness accounts while the OPD investigators and RS investigators are coming up. And I remember one time I go up to the people over here on the right side that didn't want to talk, you know, because most people don't want to talk, but I use the whole cool fireman sure. thing. And they said, yeah, you know, this uh, blue Ford Tempo rolled up and threw a Molotov cocktail on the front porch. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, man. I appreciate that. And I asked someone else. Then I go down to the other side of the street and, you know, I make it with those folks. They're like, yeah, you know, like a, a bluish colored four-door sedan pulled up and they threw something on the porch next day and it was a fire. And so I'm writing that down. And I told him, I said, so I did a quick investigation here. I wrote it. But in 2,000 years, when I'm good and gone off this earth or in 100 years or 200 years, people can go back and read that and they see that I'm accountable, that there's multiple witnesses that I talked to, which proves that that fire happened right there. You're going off my statements. And then I said, but you also need to move in and investigate who I am, what I was about, all that kind of stuff. And then also the history of the time. So I kind of threw that all out right. there and it was kind of in conjunction in your book. Um, so with that being said, I want to actually backtrack a little. Let's talk about your pre-Christian years and what your biggest struggle was accepting the gospel as truth. What, what did you find in that era of your life? Well, the biggest struggle I had was that it includes extra natural accounts. So you might believe something from, I just assumed up front that when you have a, an account that includes a miracle or something supernatural that cannot be explained with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, that you are no longer doing history. That those kinds of, like science, you don't include, um, t and today at least. Now, this is not true, by the way, for the earliest scientists in the scientific revolution. Those guys were all, and gals were all believers. So, it, not all, but the vast majority right. were Christian believers. And I talk about that in a book called Person of Interest. But it turns out that those folks had no problem reconciling the supernatural with the natural. Um, and I, I, I did because I was raised in this generation in which these two things are seen as, as genre category differences. You know, they're seen as one's, one's mythology. If it includes a god, it's mythology. If it includes just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, it might be historical. Right. So I think that was my biggest problem. I was, a, I was a philosophical naturalist, and I refused to embrace anything supernatural. Of course, the whole book the whole New Testament is grounded on a supernatural event called the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And if it's not true, then it changes everything. So right. that's the problem, I think. I had to be more uh, realistic about, well, the, first of all, do I have good reason to believe 
that nothing extra natural could ever happen when in fact the only the best explanations for the beginning of the universe the fine tuning of the universe the appearance of life the appearance of biology of design and biology free agency and, and your mind your immaterial mind i mean a lot of the aspects and the, uh, the attributes of the universe are can't even be explained by space time right. matter physics and chemistry so why would i you know i had to really kind of reconcile that i i'm resisting anything supernatural when in fact I don't have good explanations for this universe from a naturalistic perspective. The best I could say is that maybe someday science will explain it. But that's not really a fair assumption. I mean, as a Christian, if I said, hey, someday God will explain it, I don't think my atheist friends would have much patience for that. I think to say, well, someday scientists might explain it. Well, one is God of the gaps. The other is science of the gaps. I mean, you're just just saying, oh, I can't explain it now, so therefore science. Right. It's the same kind of approach. So. I just needed to be realistic and look. This is why when I wrote uh, God's Crime, uh, Cold Case Christianity, when I first pitched the idea for the book, it was because of Sean McDowell, the apologist. He wanted me to write a book on this, and I didn't think of writing a book. Right. I mean, I didn't think I had a book that was really, really you know, to write. <laughs> I hear you on uh, that. I remember yeah. one time t- trying to write out some chapters of what I thought was true about my investigation, and my wife mm-hmm. said, this is not worth – she didn't like it. <laughs> so <laughs> so I just abandoned that approach, and I wrote it right. a different way. Right. But I, I remember thinking at the time that, that uh, which book should I write first? Because for me, the first investigation I had to do was the one that's chronicled in a book called God's Crime Scene. Mm-hmm. I needed to know, was there a God of the universe – and then, is Christianity the best explanation or the accurate description of that God? Right. So, for me, it was an investigation that was kind of on two rails and occurring at the same time. That, no, that is so amazing. And, and to talk about, you know, wives, my wife was the same way when it came to writing my book was, you know, she's like, yeah, let's not go that direction. Let's go this direction and everything, because you want to make sure you hit it in a way that people are going to stand. And when you talk mm-hmm. about, you know, confronting your atheist friends, well, what I love also is that you can draw on being an atheist for as long as you were, right? You can pull that and say, yo, I get where you're coming from. You know, I, I never want to use something that's so unempathetic empathetic or unsympathetic is, I understand how you feel. That drives me nuts. You know, I'm like, yo, I've walked through some of this pain hurts or I know where you're at and the struggles you're having. Let me talk to you about the process that I went through. So when you're actually not in the broad base through book and through media and stuff, when you're having that one-on-one discussion with a small group of folks and stuff, how do you bring it to them, your experience, your studies, your investigation in a way they can feel it? Well, I I never I, I tell people this all the time, and I don't even mean to be I don't care what your experiences are. I mean I don't I mean I don't even care what my experiences are. When people ask me to share my testimony, I mean right. my testimony doesn't matter. It is yours. What matters is is it true? This right. is what I tell them, right. um, and so and that gets that draws some fire sometimes because people are so connected to their testimony. But here's the problem: it's not really an either or. It's not that I would say to you, don't ever share your testimony with people, but don't ever share your testimony if you can't substantiate it with the evidence. Wow! Because my Mormon family's got testimony doesn't make Mormonism true. Hindus have right. testimony doesn't make Hinduism true. This these things might be an indication something is true, but they don't make it true because if that's the case, everything is true then because everyone's got an experience right so it's it's your experience and then if but most of the christians i know don't take that experience you know i mm-hmm. i was suffering i prayed for this god answered mm-hmm. my prayers 
Well, how do you know God answered your prayers? And if it, if God did answer your prayers, how do you know it's the Christian God that answered mm-hmm. your prayers? I mean, right. it could have been the Mormon God, and they are very different, those two gods. Mm-hmm. So I think in the end, um, it, it's about taking whatever experience you've had, and then if you know that this is evidentially true, now you, can, now you know the God who's responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just kind of guessing, or you're just picking one out of a hat, or you're picking the one that best suits your family history, mm-hmm. or best suits your who you are trying to date, or whatever it may be. Right. So in the end, I think it, for me, I just what I try to say is, hey, I'm a Christian not because I want it to be true, mm-hmm. or because I was trying to fix something, right. or because it's working for me. I'm a Christian because it's true, and I'm stuck with it. And I'd rather right. be stuck with something that's true than believe in something that's false. So, so I, I think in the end, um, that that's how I present it. Is it this is also the case when I'm working uh, guys who have committed murders 30 years mm-hmm. ago? There are often times when I wish it wasn't true because I like the guy. Right. Seems like right. a nice guy. I've gotten to know him pretty well over the course of this investigation. Mm-hmm. And it's sad to me that he did this 30 years ago. But whether I like him or not or want it to be true or not, it is true. I know from the right. evidence that he did this. Right. So I'm stuck with this. And I'm going to have to go ahead and prosecute this guy even though I like him. And we've had right. several like that. So um, I think in the end that that's, that's how I would approach it is it doesn't really matter whether I like it or not. It matters whether or not it's true. Dude, that's spoken like a true public servant. You know, it's, you, you know, in a long story short, it's not about us. It's so not about us. It's, right. it's about serving. It's about working. And, and the same thing as a Christian, like you said, we can get wrapped up in our testimony. And I truly believe we can become self-worshipping through our testimony, you know, just, just by, and, and all it needs is a few tweaks about it. Like you said to say, you know, this is what the Lord did for me. So what I really enjoy about that is when I was going through my conversion, I mean, I people were preaching. First started off with, you know, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And that's all I heard. I'm sure they were saying a lot more to me, but that's all I, as an atheist, as an angry young man, I heard. But once it became truth, and I was like, wait, hold on. I can't discount these facts. I can't discount the way everyone's feeling. Because I see Christians, they all had a, something kind of in common, which was their faith. And I could just tear it apart because, you know, I went to paramedic school when I was 19 years old. Well, as you know from police work and firefighter paramedic work, we have to make some quick decisions that can be life-altering for people, you know. And so a lot of times when people would hit me with the gospel message, I was so quick to discount it. But I was also able to bring my hardcore fireman attitude, which scared them, you know. You know, is that taking control of a scene that I would take control of that conversation. And a lot of times I think that I left that Christian doubting, but I did. And I actually just left them scared and they wanted to get the heck away from me, you know? Once in a generation, a podcast comes along with the power and eloquence to inspire us all. This show will entertain you while you wait for that one. Join two best friends, author and former history teacher John Driver and comedian Johnny W. for hilarious and authentic conversations about life, history, culture, faith, and everything in between. You can listen to Talk About That wherever you find your podcasts or at lifeaudio.com. So when we encounter that tough cop or that tough fireman, and I know my listeners aren't all cops and firemen, when they encounter that that hard person, what's an approach you could tell one of the listeners they could take to talk to them about the gospel message? 
Well, ask good questions. I mean, what what is keeping people alive? It's different for every person you're talking to. We we, we have a tendency to assume there's one generic kind of non-believer out there, and here's the now. Look, I, I get it. The power, the gospel has power, and so there's a sense in which if I just share the gospel the same way with everyone, it, it, that the power of God is in the gospel, but it has to be spoken in a language that the hearer understands. And you know, if I if I told you that you were speaking to somebody who only speaks Japanese, well, then you speaking the gospel in English isn't going to help them much. Yeah, the gospel has power, but it's not in the right language. And mm-hmm. sometimes language is not just about words. It's about presuppositions. It's about what do I suppose about the world that prevents me from hearing the words that you're using and the way you mean them to be heard. Mm-hmm. Because I have different ideas about those words, and so as soon as you say them, I think that's nonsense. And it comes down to language, which is not necessarily the word, but it's how I interpret certain ideas that are mm-hmm. expressed in those words. So it's important for us to know, like, what language is this person speaking? That means we're going to do a better job of communicating the gospel. Now, what you could do is just, you know, like, like shooting birdshot. I don't have to be targeted. This if I shoot enough birdshot, I'm going to right. hit something. Right. Well, that's fine. But if you've got somebody you love, who actually this is not just I'm just going to shoot and drive by and walk away. I'm actually want to see that this person hears the gospel. It'd probably be wise to figure out what language they're speaking first, including the language of their presuppositions, the language of their worldview. Because worldviews change the way you hear the same sentence. I once heard uh, Emerson Egerich talk about how men and women uh, say the same sentence, but we we mean different things. So if, if your wife says, I have nothing to wear to this party tonight, right. what that often means is different than what you say when I right. have nothing to wear. When my <laughs> wife says, I have nothing to wear, she means I have nothing that I like or nothing that's new to wear. Mm-hmm. When a guy says, I have nothing to wear, it usually means I have nothing that's clean. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, we pull it out, we sniff, we're like, I'm not wearing that. Same it's sentence. Right. Same sentence, but because we hold two different perspectives on what's important to us, two different ways of looking at the world, uh, we mean two different things by the same sentence. So you've got to speak each other's language. So the first thing I would say to people who are trying to communicate the gospel is, hey, do you even know enough about the person you're talking to to know Mm. what the obstacles are? Like, why is it he doesn't believe? Because it might just be you could spend better time talking about the thing that's stumbling him or her rather than, let me just say the same thing over and over again. Every time you've heard it in the past, it's been ineffective. And I'll just think it's going to somehow be different today. And maybe God's spirit is with me. Well, how about this? Let, Let God's spirit lead you to a wise course of conversation that deals more with his presuppositions it's like you know a simple question might be well you've probably heard the gospel before have you right. have you heard the message of jesus do you know what it right. is uh, right. if, if you have okay so what do you think is the biggest obstacle why does that sound like nonsense to you because for a lot of people it does and i would get it if it does to you too so just tell me how do you how do you think it why, why do you resist it, or what what doesn't make sense about it like ask simple questions to figure out where the next part of the conversation is going to go. Don't assume that every, there's like a generic version. And this is sometimes what we have to do if we have been raised up with an understanding of street evangelism, right? Like mm-hmm. if and if we like, hey, we're going to go to the mall, this is why sometimes when I take students to a large event like that or a large location like that, we go out with spiritual surveys mm-hmm. because the way into that conversation is through a questionnaire that says, hey, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about right. your, your worldview? Who's going to say no? Right. Uh, so you start, you know, well, do you believe in God and why or why not? You know, you can ask lots of questions. Uh, do you believe that truth exists? Start with truth. 
Do you believe that there are moral truths? Start with that. Do you believe right. there's a, a being or a, a power in the universe beyond ourselves? You can start something innocuous. You can refine it and get it down to Scripture, get it down to Christianity. But by asking questions, now I realize, okay, I'm, I'm dealing with somebody who's an ex-this or an ex-that. Right. That's going to change the way I deliver the Christian message. If I know I'm talking to somebody, for example, who used to be a Mormon, Right. Who they fool me once, you know, shame on, on, on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right. Well, that's a totally different conversation that I'm going to have with somebody who's just been raised around nothing. Right. So no, you, I, need you know, to, I need to know what, what their worldview is before I can even begin. Right. That is so good. And I love it because, again, you know, going the whole fireman view of looking at it is when we get called to a scene, whether it's a shooting, whether it's a stabbing, or it's a sweet little lady that's having a stroke. At the end of the day, the processes that they're going through are going to lead to death if we don't stop it, right? So I do not treat a shooting victim up on 34th Street like I do with the sweet little lady over on 39th Street that's having a stroke. It's an assessment. And so like what you're saying, when you approach people, it's so good that you're going to assess them. So if I come up to a hardened, hardcore fireman, I know I can approach him a certain way. Or I talk to my cop buddies, I can approach him a certain way. But when I then come up to a teenager or someone who's struggling or maybe someone who's had some horrible abuse that hit them, I'm not going to come as maybe, quote, heavy as I would with my fireman buddies. Because with them, I can say, bro, dude, we've witnessed countless people take their final breaths. Their eternities are being locked in. Doesn't that scare you? You know what I mean? I can do that. But if I then throw that to some sweet, kind person or someone who's been abused that doesn't get the world that I've walked in all this time... You're right. It, it won't work. So it's an assessment. It's getting to know them. And I love that you take that, that aspect out there when you're doing it one-on-one. -on -one. And I can also see it shine through you when you're doing the broad-based ministry that I constantly see you doing. With that being said, one of the questions I do want to hit you on, in the past 10 years since your book first hit the shelves and got out there, Give us some big lessons that maybe you've learned that um, maybe you haven't shared or, you know, some personal experiences that you've gone through, um, just going through learning all the people who've read your book and the feedback you had. What are some major things you've learned in the past 10 years? Well, I, mean, I think I've learned that, that, that young people are, should be our target. Should be, and I knew that before I even wrote the book, but this is something where I, you, know, you make the book as visual as possible. With the rewrite of the book, it's, it's far more visual than it was before. It had 90 illustrations and graphic elements in the first publishing. It has 390 now because Ooh. we felt like this needed to be a more visual. We write, we write these books really for high schoolers, but I push high schoolers hard. And you can push a high schooler hard as long as you have some way to make this thing visual. To communicate it in a way that is not just, you know, everyone loves cop stories because let's, there's, there's no more genre uh, on, there's entire channels dedicated to detective shows, ID channel, Oxygen, uh, True Crime, and, and True TV. I mean, all these channels now are 100% cop shows. Right. So people are interested in that, and that's good. And so that kind of gets me a leg in with the young people. But more importantly, I think we're a visual generation. So my background as an illustrator before I became a detective has now been helpful because I can illustrate this to whatever degree I want to illustrate it. And I can think about how I talk about each page in terms of the kind of visual analogy that might be helpful. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I do in front of juries is make the case accessible quickly by making it visual. And every one of my cases, I was able to build the openings and the closings. And when I build an opening or a closing for the district attorney, I'm trying to make this as visual as possible so they can see the... Because these are almost always cumulative 
cases, especially cold cases. It's right. on the strength of a thousand paper cuts that you're you know, making the case. And so you have to be able to illustrate that visually so that people see it and go, yeah, that actually is a really good case. I mean, it's pretty strong because look how big it is. Look how big it is. That, uh, that right. Even when we say that those kinds of expressions, I could see how convincing it was. It's because we have a sense that we're tying what we can see to what we then know to be true. So oh, I, I think in that. the end, we wanted to make this book visual. We've got a kid's version, which is even more visual, which is called Cold Case Christianity for Kids. Wow. But this is, that's, that's gauged for 8 to 12-year-olds. Yeah. This is really gauged, I think, for high school and above. No, and I think you can push high schoolers as long as you make it visual. Right, and, and I agree with that because it's, it's a, you know, the classic term that we use all the time, paint the picture. So I go to the hospital, and we have a victim. I hop in with the ambulance, and I ride with them because we had a major wreck. Well, a lot of times we'd get there and the trauma surgeon would be like, oh, okay, well, I'm like, bro, no, I, it was back before we could take a picture and bring it with us on our iPhone and stuff and everything. I was like, I wish I had a Polaroid there so I could paint the picture of how mangled this car is, bro. I've never seen a car this destroyed and someone alive. But when I would slow down and paint the picture of actually, all right, man, there was three feet of compartmental intrusion. The, the roof was bowed down into where this guy was sitting we had the steering wheel smash him in the seat so we had to cut the steering wheel off just to get him out. Now, all of a sudden, the trauma surgeon would think, oh, wow, this is how injured they may be. And they would be a little more urgent as opposed to, ah, they're going to be okay. So painting that picture, man, I'm telling you, that that's so amazing. And for the high school generation that you're talking about, they need it because we were having this great discussion, my wife and I, about our kids. We have a 17-year-old that's getting ready to go off into pilot school. He chose that route instead of uh, going into college. And we have a 15-year-old. And our biggest fear in life was, what if we just showed them Christian, kept showing, 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 but they know the real us and they hear the gossip that comes out of us and this and that. Oh my gosh, maybe we didn't do things the way we shouldn't. We freaked out. But then... We sat down and we talked with our kids again, you know, and I'm a true believer. I can't make anyone become a Christian. That's that's between them and the Lord and stuff. But when we're able to paint the picture of why they so desperately needed the Lord instead of just constantly giving them scripture and preaching and bringing that scripture alive, it's so good. But what I love what you're doing here is you're bringing the scripture alive based on proof <laughs> that that it happened, you know? And, and do you find that that has a better effect with uh, that generation, that when you give them proof, something kind of clicks with them? No, I think it's true for all of us. We're all evidentialists. We can't avoid it. We, we base our decisions on something we've seen, so it's very empirical. Something we've heard, something we've experienced. So we're, we're trusting some form of evidence. The only question is, which form of evidence are you going to trust? And that's why I think we, we all take an evidential approach, if you think about it. Right. I love that. All right, Jim, before we finish up here, I'm going to throw it over to you. I'm going to give you the floor. What is something or multiple things you're praying that people will take away from the 10th anniversary edition of your book? What what are you hoping for there? I think all of us that write books, we're trying to increase the passion level of the people who read them so that they are passionate about what, what it is they say they believe about God. They're so passionate. Part of the problem we have is that we are uh, so ingrained in our jobs that it becomes a part of our identity. We can't see ourselves outside of that identity. And when you write books, sadly, you end up amplifying your identity because this is the nature of content marketing. This is the nature of me even coming on your podcast. If I wasn't a cold case detective, 
who had maybe had some success on Dateline, I probably wouldn't even have the platform I have. Now, the question, of course, is that does not give me, that does not give me value. Right. My identity is in Christ. And the problem for most of us is that we're more excited about our careers. We can recite more details of things we experienced on the job than we can right. about the God we say we worship. Like we have a hard time even spotting false notions about God that are now in the church across the across the culture. Right. We've got a rewriting of the New Testament, a rewriting of the moral teaching of Jesus, largely right. because we're not familiar enough with the original to right. spot the counterfeit. And that's because we are more passionate as men about our careers than we are about the God who eventually we will stand before. Right. And so I think for a lot of it, I, what I'm hoping to do with a book like this, yes, I'm going to try to leverage that career, mm-hmm. which doesn't define me. Mm-hmm. So I can help people see why my identity is in Christ today. And now I, the problem, of course, is that I don't want everyone, you know, this is, I, how do I get introduced? How did you introduce right. me? How does everyone introduce me? Right. On the basis of things that don't really matter eternally. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try to leverage our experiences on this side of the grave, pardon my mm-hmm. hitting the mic, so that we can hopefully have a chance to to do something to bring people into the presence of God. And so if all we can do here is increase their passion about this worldview, so they're as passionate about right. this as they appear to be about their jobs, if you're a guy, or about their families, or about their their uh, identity, or about whatever it is they think is important to them right now, I think we will have done a service. And that's my goal, hopefully, with books like Cold Case, is just to, hey, if this is true, we ought to, like, like Lewis says, it, it's either, if it's not true, it's of no importance. If it is true, it's of infinite importance. What it cannot be is moderately important. Right. So if all we're doing here is helping people to see this is the most important truth claim we will ever know, it would be worth the effort. I love that, dude. The way that I've always kind of explained that is all the responses, all the fires, everything I went to mean absolutely nothing. But what I do is I reach back into them and say, all right, God, what do you want me to do with this experience? How can I use it to bless someone else? All right, God, so people enjoyed the stories of me being able to tie scripture together and paint the picture. And now there's 700,000 people following me on social media, which I really don't care about. But what I care about is, God, how can I pluck that social media following and use it to honor you and bless others to keep them going? So, I, I mean, dude, I just I want to give you a high five <laughs> for, for that, man. That is so good. My friends... Author J. Warner Wallace, go out and get his book, Cold Case Christianity, the 10th Anniversary. It includes 300 new illustrations for visually, for the visually driven culture. All right, bro. I so appreciate you coming on. And the last thing I'm going to ask of you is where can people find the book, get more of you and all that good stuff? Well, we post three times a week at coldcasechristianity.com. So that's a good place to go just if you've got questions about why you could trust the scriptures are true, the New Testament is true. We, we post a lot there. And my whole goal is, you know, I, I think all of us should take advantage of the things that are out there for free. And I think, you know, most of us are producing content that is out there for free. Take advantage of it because I think you can learn a lot before you ever have to spend a dime. Awesome, man. And then we'll post that in the links and we'll uh, also throw a link to where they can get the book and all that good stuff. So, all righty, sir. I appreciate you coming on and you have an awesome day. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. I hope you found this episode as encouraging as I did. Be sure to click the like, subscribe, or whatever button you see that will notify you of future shows because we have some awesome guests lined up that you're not going to want to miss. Until next week, Remember this, my friends, Jesus is all we need. I love you guys.
I want to take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. So head on over to lifeaudio.com and check them out. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for working everything out for my good. Help me trust in your perfect plan. Amen. Father, thank you for loving and caring for me. With Christian prayer meditation, you can pray along to prayers based on specific topics. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Christian prayer meditation. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.